Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the 10th Annual Joseph Story Distinguished Lecture. On behalf of the Heritage Foundation and our Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, it's great to welcome all of you here tonight. Uh, tonight's event is part of our Preserve the Constitution series, uh, which we have at this time of the year. And we hold uh, this uh, story lecture each year in conjunction with our Legal Strategy Forum, which brings together uh, almost uh, 50 freedom-based public interest law organizations from around the country. It's uh, chaired by our distinguished uh, director of the Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, John Malcolm, who's here with us tonight, and you'll meet him later on. The story lecture uh, honors a distinguished American lawyer and jurist. Uh, he is described by historians as probably having one of the most distinguished and significant impacts on the early legal history of the United States and also has indeed, uh, according to them, has as much or more influence on shaping American law than even Chief Justice John Marshall. In his early career, Story served before even becoming a justice. He served as uh, a member of the uh, Massachusetts House of Representatives, where he was also elected Speaker of the House. He was appointed to the United States Supreme Court by President Madison in 1812. At that point, he was the youngest person to serve as an, as an associate justice in our history, and uh, he served 33 years until his death in 1845. He was an outstanding legal scholar and even taught law at Harvard University uh, while he was on the court. Joseph Story is particularly remembered for the excellence of the opinions that he wrote, and especially for his magisterial uh, document, Com Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, which was first published in 1833. It's described by, again, historians, as dominating the field in the 19th century, and that this work is literally the cornerstone of early American jurisprudence and remains a critical source of historical information about the forming of the American Republic and the early struggles to define the law of this country. These Joseph Story lectures, which we have had over the years, and particularly tonight, celebrate his legacy and his continuing contribution through his writings to our nation's jurisprudence. Previous lectures have featured three Supreme Court justices, several appellate court judges, 
an eminent professor of law, and tonight we are honored to have as our story lecturer the first distinguished member of the United States Senate. To introduce our honored guest, we are pleased to have the president of the Heritage Foundation. Kay Coles James was unanimously elected by the Heritage Foundation's Board of Trustees to be our president in December of 2017, not quite a year ago. She brings a wealth of experience to this position, having served on the Heritage Board from the year 2005 uh, right until the present time. And certainly she's been at a a major feature in the conservative movement, a major leader of that movement for more than 30 years. During that time, Kay has made conservative solutions a reality at all levels of government, including the White House and in academia. Most recently, Kay was the founder and served as the president of the Gloucester Institute, an organization dedicated to the training and nurturing of leaders in the African-American community. Kay is a graduate of Hampton University, the recipient of numerous honorary degrees, and a best-selling author. Most important, Kay is married to Charles James, Jr., and is the proud mother of three and grandmother of five. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the president of the Heritage Foundation, Kay James. Thank you so much, Ed. And the first thing I want to say is welcome to the Heritage Foundation. And as a point of personal privilege, uh, I ask to uh, be able to introduce our speaker tonight. Um, This is indeed a special evening. He is um, a personal hero of mine, as well as being an American hero. It's a man who, for over his four decades of public service, has selflessly and unreservedly fought to preserve liberty in this country. But don't just take it from me. His record speaks for itself. Nearly 800 of Senator Hatch's bills have become law, more than any other American legislator in history. That's something to be proud of. Not only that, but he's been instrumental in confirming conservative judges to the federal bench and played an indispensable role in confirming uh, one of our guests tonight, Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, as well as Scalia, Alito, Gorsuch, and most recently, Brett Kavanaugh. But as a point of personal privilege, uh, I have been confirmed by the United States Senate three times And two of those times, um, it was um, under the watchful eye of Senator Hatch. As a young conservative coming to this town um, and being just absolutely mortified at the thought of uh, sitting in front of the United States Senate to know that there was someone there uh, who loved this country, who cared enough personally about me to take a special interest in my own confirmation hearings, uh, meant the world. And there are several of my mentors and friends in this room tonight, and I certainly count Senator Hatch among them. 
He has been a protector of our religious liberty, and that is so important, I know, to each and every one of us here. Uh, with his landmark Religious Freedom Restoration Act, he's also been a staunch defender of our Constitution. One would think that you wouldn't have to say that about a United States senator because you would think they all are. But in this case, we know that we have a defender there and one who holds our founding documents in high esteem. He's proven to be one of the most respected statesmen in the United States Senate, and his record of fiscal responsibility actually earned him a nickname from President Reagan, who called him Mr. Balanced Budget. <laughs> Boy, we need you now more than ever. By all measures, Senator Hatch has been one of the most impactful and effective legislators of modern times. Since starting in Congress in 1977, until his retirement at the end of this 115th Congress, he's kept the flame of liberty alive and has honorably, honorably served our nation. Senator, we are so pleased to have you here tonight and to recognize your contribution to this country, and I hope that you can feel the love and the affirmation that we all have for you. You are truly an American hero. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you all for that nice, uh, that nice round of applause. Um, uh, I've been in places where it was otherwise. <laughs> I can hear that Justice Thomas's laugh all the way. <laughs> He's one of the greatest additions of the Supreme Court I've ever seen. I just want you all to... Yeah. It's a real honor to be here at the Heritage Foundation. This is one of the most important institutions in our nation's capital, indeed, in the entire country. For decades, the Heritage Foundation has led the way in promoting policies that advance freedom, prosperity, individual responsibility, and individual liberty. It's been a stalwart in the fight to confirm textualists, originalist judges, who will interpret the laws written, not make policy themselves. I'm particularly honored to have been invited to deliver this year's Joseph Story Distinguished Lecture. As you all know, Justice Kavanaugh delivered last year's lecture. That is a title I will never tire of saying, Justice Kavanaugh. <laughs> By the way, that confirmation will go down in history as uh, uh, showing the despicability of uh, the other side. Uh, but he, but uh, we won, and we got him on the bench now, and I'm, I couldn't be happier. As I've considered what I should speak about, I thought it would be appropriate and timely to share some thoughts about the confirmation process, particularly the judicial confirmation process. Uh, some of you may not know this, but Justice Story was actually my very first Supreme Court confirmation. <laughs> That was when I arrived in the Senate back in 1811. 
I didn't think that was good for you guys to laugh at them. <laughs> His confirmation hearing was quite an event. They threw everything they had at him. Really tough questions about letter of, letters of Mark, post roads, piracy, and felonies committed on the high seas. The XYZ affair, the Louisiana Purchase, Justice Story's family apothecary shop, nothing was off limits. <laughs> I even remember that even Spartacus made an appearance. <laughs> which, which was, of course, a real surprise. <laughs> Let me tell you, travel between Italy and D.C. took a lot longer back then. <laughs> In seriousness, reviewing judicial nominations is one of the Senate's most important duties. And it's been one of my primary focuses since I took office as a U.S. Senator. I'm the former chairman and longest-serving member on the, at least the Republican side of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I think Leahy probably has, a, has me by a few months. I've seen a lot of judicial nominees in my time. In fact, I've participated in the confirmation of more than half of Article Three judges who have ever served. A lot has changed during my time in office. I wish I could say that the confirmation process has improved, or at least stayed about the same, but it hasn't. It's declined precipitously. The judicial confirmation process, simply put, is a mess. It hasn't always been this way. Both sides used to work together or at the very least, used to try to treat each other's nominees fairly. The delay tactics that have become so commonplace used to be pretty rare. Here's an amazing fact, one that's almost impossible to believe, given the current state of things. Before Justice Breyer uh, was uh, confirmed, he was, uh, he was uh, Justice Breyer on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. He was nominated to that position by President Carter. And he uh, was confirmed on December 9th, 1980. Think about that date for a moment. December 9th, 1980. That was after the 1980 election. When you may recall, uh, which you may recall, ushered in the uh, very interesting tenure of, uh, of uh, as you all know, Ronald Reagan. It was the Reagan Revolution. Not only did Ronald Reagan defeat President Carter in the presidential race, but Republicans captured the Senate for the first time in 26 years. Notwithstanding all that, the Senate voted to confirm Judge Breyer in December 1980, and the vote wasn't even close. It was 80 to 10. Only six Republicans opposed Judge Breyer's confirmation. And that's not the whole of it. Judge Breyer wasn't even nominated until after the 1980 election. So he was both nominated and confirmed after Carter lost. Think about that. After Carter lost the election and after Democrats lost the Senate. And Republicans didn't, did not try to block him. They voted for him overwhelmingly. You would never see that today, no matter which party was in the White House. I'm going to focus the majority of my remarks 
tonight on the Supreme Court, but the lower courts are important as well. And so I'm also going to talk about lower court nominations, and in particular, the Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, which after the Supreme Court has probably been the site of most pitched battles, most pitched confirmation battles. As we'll see, the trend lines at the Supreme Court level repeat themselves in the lower courts as well. When I first joined the Senate back in 1977, the Breyer confirmation was largely par for the course. The timing was a bit unusual, but the vote count was not. I was sworn into office a few weeks before Jimmy Carter became president. President Carter did not have any Supreme Court nominations during his term, thankfully. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm very thankful anyway. <laughs> but he did have four D.C. Circuit nominations, and those nominations were Patricia Wald, Abner Mikva, Harry Edwards, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So we can thank Jimmy Carter for both Stephen Breyer and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> of course, I say that in jest. They're both terrific people and highly respected jurists. I care for each one of them, even though they do rule the wrong way sometimes. Maybe, maybe quite a bit more than I, I care for. The time between nomination and confirmation for all four of President Carter's D.C. Circuit nominees was two to three months. A bit longer than Stephen Breyer had to wait, but not all that much longer in the grand scheme of things. And what about their confirmation votes? As best I can tell from my research, Judge Edwards and then Judge Ginsburg were confirmed either by voice vote or unanimous consent. Judge Wald's confirmation vote was 77 to 21, with a majority of Republicans supporting, uh, supporting the nominee, her nomination. Judge Mikva had the closest vote of 58 to 31, still a comfortable margin. After President Carter came President Reagan, and uh, for a while, confirmations continued largely as before. There were some close votes here and there, but in the main, nominees were confirmed relatively uh, easily and quickly, and with wide support. Let's start with Sandra Day O'Connor, nominated by President Reagan to the Supreme Court in 1981. Justice O'Connor received some criticism from pro-life groups when she was nominated, but her confirmation hearings went smoothly, and she... Uh, she uh, was ultimately confirmed by a vote of 90 to z 99 to zero. President Reagan's next Supreme Court nomination was a twofer. When Chief Justice Warren Burger announced his retirement in 1986, President Reagan decided to elevate then-Associate Justice William Rehnquist to Chief Justice and name a new Associate Justice, Antonin Scalia, one of the all-time great justices on the court, in my opinion. Let's start with Justice Scalia. Scalia was, Scalia was a well-known conservative jurist who had served in both the Nixon and Ford administrations before joining the D.C. Circuit in 1982. He had also served as the first faculty advisor for the Federalist Society's University of Chicago chapter. He, has no, he was no stealth nominee. Both sides knew exactly 
for the most part, what they were getting. And what was his confirmation vote? 98 to 0. Unanimous. Just like Justice O'Connor's. Justice Rehnquist's confirmation process for Chief Justice was a bit more contentious. He had served on the court for 15 years as an associate justice and had accumulated a string of dissents to liberal opinions, and so Democrats gave him a very difficult time. They accused him of voter intimidation from his time in private practice back in Arizona. They dug up a restrictive covenant that he didn't know anything about, neither did they, by the way, until they found it was in their their deeds as well, <laughs> which, of course, we aptly pointed out, on a piece of property he had owned. Just a, and they fixated on a memo he'd written for Justice Robert Jackson back when he was a clerk for Jackson. That's how bad it was getting. You can imagine. None of these attacks stuck, and Rehnquist was confirmed by a vote of 65 to 33. A closer margin than O'Connor and Scalia, to be sure, but still comfortable. He won the votes of 16 Democrats, roughly a third of the Democratic caucus at the time. Notably, Rehnquist's nomination was the first time in history that, that opponents of a Supreme Court nomination attempted a partisan filibuster. 31 Senate Democrats voted to filibuster his nomination. Not enough to block him, but a precedent was set. And the parties in the partisan terrain shifted. Most of us know what comes next after Rehnquist and Scalia. But before getting to that, I'd like to turn back to the D.C. court for a moment. It's important not to forget about the lower courts. President Reagan nominated eight judges to the D.C. Circuit. We should all ask God's blessing for President Trump to get that many nominations. Here's the list. Robert Bork, Antonin Scalia, Ken Starr, Larry Silberman, Jim Buckley, Stephen Williams, Doug Ginsburg, David uh, Santel. Conservative all-stars, every one. The longest time any of them had to wait between nomination and confirmation was four months. The majority, in, uh, in fact, were confirmed in less than two months. And what about their confirmation votes? Well, this will surprise you. Seven of the eight were confirmed either by voice vote or unanimous consent. Only Judge Buckley had a roll call vote, and his vote was 84 to 11. That means a lot of President Reagan's eight D.C. Circuit nominees. Only one received any no votes. Only one. Can you imagine that happening today? <laughs> Never. Let's turn back now to the Supreme Court. As I discussed earlier, in 1986, Justice Scalia was confirmed 98 to 0. And Chief Justice Rehnquist was confirmed 65 to 33. Even Rehnquist, who had faced a fairly contentious confirmation process for the time, was confronted and confirmed by a two-to-one margin. Then came 1987. Then came Bork, one of the truly greatest judges in the country at the time. Maybe ever, in my eyes, ever. For those who came of age in the law or politics after 1987, 
it's difficult to, under, difficult to understand what a sea change Bork's confirmation process was. Character assassination, shameless misrepresentations of the nominee's record, partisan warfare. It all seems so commonplace now, but it wasn't always this way. Justice Scalia sailed through 98 to nothing. 98 to nothing as the first Italian ever nominated to the court. Go back and watch Justice Scalia's confirmation hearings. He smoked his pipe. <laughs> I, I won't tell you about that story. And, uh, <laughs> and he had pleasant, con pleasant confirmation, uh, co conversations with Judiciary Committee members. I'm not joking. He literally smoked a pipe. It was expected at the time that senators would treat nominees with courtesy, <coughs> that they would give presidents deference on their judicial selections, that they would ask nominees pointed questions but wouldn't try to destroy them. So imagine everyone's surprise, shock really, when Ted Kennedy took to the Senate floor within 45 minutes of Bork's nomination and said the following, quote, Robert Bork's America is a land of which, in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at congregate, segregated lunch counters, rogue police could break down citizens' doors in the middle in midnight raids, school children could not be taught about evolution, writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government, and the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens, unquote. Very colorful language, uh, Kennedy. He was known for that. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, that sounds like what, what, what pretty much every Democrat said about Justice Kavanaugh. Well, it was unprecedented at the time. It had been less than a year since the Senate had confirmed Justice Scalia unanimously. Even what Rehnquist went through was nothing compared to what Democrats did to Bork. They smeared him as an extremist, an activist, and a bigot. Five, year, five years earlier, he had been confirmed to the second highest court in the land by unanimous consent. Now, he was the uh, greatest threat to, the in, to individual liberty since Attila the Hun. Judiciary Committee Democrats prepared a 70-page report that grossly misrepresented Judge Bork's distinguished record and painted him as some sort of retrograde. Bork's video rental history was even leaked to the press in a desperate attempt to find something salacious to embarrass him with. Of course, they got tired of the easygoing family shows that he was used to. Regrettably, Democrats succeeded in their slanderous tactics. They took one of the greatest legal minds of a generation, a former Yale law professor and solicitor general of the United States, and defeated him. The final vote was 58 to 42 against confirmation. It was a dark, dark day for our country. President Reagan ultimately nominated uh, Ninth Circuit Judge Anthony Kennedy to that seat after a fairly smooth confirmation process. Justice Kennedy was confirmed 97 to 0. 
The next nominee to the Supreme Court was David Souter, the stealth nominee. Having been confirmed to the First Circuit only two months before, uh, President George H.W. Bush nominated him to the Supreme Court, Souter had a minimal paper trail. It was uh, virtually impossible for opponents to misrepresent his record the way they distorted just Bork's, mainly because he didn't have anyone. And the stealth strategy was a success, at least vote-wise. Souter was confirmed easily by a vote of 90 to 9. But even he had 9 against him. Jurisprudentially, of course, some would say the stealth strategy was somewhat less than a success. In any event, Souter was the calm between two storms. Next came my dear friend Clarence Thomas, who is here tonight. I'm surprised he's still alive after all he went through, I'll tell you. <laughs> Anybody with a laugh like that has got to live forever as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> In any event, Souter was the calm between two storms. Like I say, Clarence Thomas was next. I thought perhaps uh, uh, naively that the Bork nomination was as bad as it could get. Senate Democrats had taken a universally admired and respected jurist and managed to paint him as a threat to freedom and prosperity. They had twisted his record and his words until they were completely unrecognizable. Then came my friend Justice Thomas. But it turns out that, they grossly mis- that, that grossly misrepresenting a nominee's record is only part of the playbook. There's also character assassination. Justice Thomas, as I think most people know, is a dear friend of mine. We're honored to have him here tonight. I'd like to make just a few points about his confirmation experience. Not many people remember this, but but there were actually two sets of hearings on Justice Thomas's nomination. The first was the standard set of hearings on his record and qualifications, the sort of hearings all Supreme Court nominees have to endure and go through. The second set was the hearings with Professor Hill. By the time Hill came forward, Justice Thomas's nomination had already been voted out of committee. Indeed, she went public only two days before Justice Thomas's nomination was scheduled for a vote, for a final floor vote. And so the Senate delayed the vote to hear from Professor Hill. You may notice some parallels here to recent events. The hearings were, they were ugly. But I believe they vindicated Justice Thomas. I was there. And I made sure they did. And the American people agreed. Opinion polls taken shortly after the hearing showed that the public believed Justice Thomas's account overwhelmingly, as they should have. And at the end of the day, Justice Thomas was confirmed as he should have been. One of the proudest moments of my time in the United States Senate. And to have him here tonight is a particular wonderful thing for me. Uh, one of the proudest moments I had in my life was defending Justice Thomas from the scurrilous, unfounded attacks on his character. Justice Thomas is a blessing to this country. And I thank God every day that he is on the Supreme Court.
I'm not saying this just because I may in the future appear before the Supreme Court. <laughs> but Thomas, you better be on my side. <laughs> At the time of Justice Thomas's confirmation, I had been in the Senate for 14 years. We had gone from a unanimous confirmation process for Justice O'Connor to a more contentious process for Chief Justice Rehnquist to the all-out warfare of Bork and, and Thomas of the Bork and Thomas nominations. The attacks had become increasingly heated, increasingly personal. By all appearances, we we're on the on the road to the abyss. Then something interesting happened. We took a step back. Consider the next two Supreme Court nominations. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer. Both of them are very interesting justices on the United States Supreme Court. They're our friends from the Carter days. Both were well-known liberals. Before joining the bench, Ginsburg had been the ACLU's general counsel. Breyer had been Ted Kennedy's chief counsel. But they were both well-respected and had solid reputations on the Court of Appeals. I knew that and I helped them. So when President Clinton called me in 1993 to ask my views on who he should nominate to the Supreme Court, I suggested Ginsburg and Breyer because I was sure he was going to pick the most left-wing nutcake that he could find. <laughs> they were certainly not the nominees I would have chosen had I been, been president, but as the ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, I thought it was important to try to work with the White House to dial back the, uh, the problems with the confirmation process and the bitterness that was existing and the rancor that had been escalating for so long. And to his credit, President Clinton nominated justices Ginsburg and Breyer. Both had smooth confirmations and confirmation processes and were confirmed overwhelmingly by both Democrats and Republicans. Justice Ginsburg's confirmation vote was 90 to 3. Justice Breyer's was 87 to 9. And so after the all-out partisan attacks on Bork and Thomas, Republicans took a step back from the brink. Now, I've been criticized by some for my role in suggesting Justices Ginsburg and Breyer to President Clinton. But I believe it was the right thing to do. I was really worried about who was, who was really going to appoint and you can imagine who they would have loved to. Republicans were in the minority at the time. We could not block President Clinton's nominees. So I was interested in getting the best people we possibly could. And those two were, in my book, as good as you could get from that administration. But we could work with the other side to stop the slide into the abyss, and that's what we did. The confirmation wars hit a pause. Things were relatively calm at the lower court level as well, uh, as well uh, through much of Clinton's presidency. There was some sniping at the fact that uh, nominations were taking longer to process the practice the Democrats had begun under George H.W. Bush. The confirmation votes were generally bipartisan if there even was a roll call vote rather than a voice vote or a unanimous consent agreement. Let's take a quick look at the D.C. Circuit the most important circuit court in the country. President Clinton appointed three judges to the D.C. Circuit. Judith Rogers, 
David Tattell, and Merrick Garland. He also nominated Elena Kagan and Alan Snyder during the latter part of his second term. But the Senate did not act on their nominations following the precedent Senate Democrats set under George H.W. Bush. Judges Rogers and Tattell were both confirmed by reasonable votes, really. Uh, it was a real difficult thing, but they were both confirmed by voice vote within four months of nomination. Justice Garland's confirmation process was a bit different. There was a dispute at the time over where there was a, uh, you know, whether there was a need for another judge on the D.C. Circuit. Compared to other courts of appeal, appeals, the D.C. Circuit had a smaller caseload per judge. After an extended back and forth, the Senate voted to confirm Judge Garland 18 months after he was nominated. The vote was 76 to 23, with the majority of Republicans supporting his nomination. I'm going to pause for just a moment here to swap out my speech boxes. When you have a lecture this thorough, and of course this detailed and distinguished, it takes more than one speech box. <laughs> so I'm going to swap sweet speech boxes at this point. After President Clinton came President George W. Bush. President Bush appointed four judges to the D.C. Circuit. John Roberts, Janice Rogers, uh, Janice Rogers Brown, excuse me, Tom Griffith, and Brett Kavanaugh. Their confirmation experiences were, shall we say, rather different from President Clinton's nominees. Recall how long President Clinton's nominees had to wait between nomination and confirmation. Judge Rogers waited four months. Judge Tattell also waited four months. Judge Garland had a lengthier 18-month wait while the argument over D.C. Circuit's caseload played out. Well, here's how long George W. Bush's D.C. Circuit nominees had to wait between nomination and confirmation. Judge Roberts, two years. Judge Brown, nearly two years. Now, these are George W. Bush's nominees. Uh, Judge Griffith, they were comparatively breakneck, breakneck at 13 months. And the winner of the Democratic obstruction crown, Judge Kavanaugh, two years and 10 months. Judge Kavanaugh waited longer between nomination and confirmation than all 12 Carter and Reagan D.C. Circuit nominees combined. This recitation of President Bush's D.C. Circuit nominees leaves out an important name, Miguel Estrada. That's because Estrada was never confirmed. He withdrew his nomination after two years and four months in limbo after Senate Democrats filibustered his nomination seven times. For the first time, by the way. You'll notice I just used the F word, filibuster, <laughs> which is just as bad as the other F word. <laughs> when they use it. It's very important when we use it. We talk about the extraordinary delays that arose during the George W. Bush years. The root cause was Senate Democrats' unprecedented use of the filibuster in judicial nominations. This was a new front in the confirmation wars. It may sound strange today, but until the early 2000s, judicial filibusters simply did not happen 
at least not for lower court nominees. Prior to the George W. Bush administration, there had never been a successful filibuster of a lower court nominee. And there had never been a successful filibuster of any judicial nominee who had clear majority support. That changed during the Bush years, and it really precipitated the decline of the judicial confirmation process. All of my work, or excuse me, all of the work my Republican colleagues and I had done during the Clinton administration to restore a semblance of bipartisanship was blown up in an instant. It became all about warfare once again. No good deed goes unpunished, as you know. Just look at the confirmation votes on President Bush's D.C. Circuit nominees. John Roberts had a voice vote. Good for him. Janice Rogers Brown, 56 to 43. A black woman who clearly was a very interesting and good person. Only one Democrat supported her. Tom Griffith. You'd have to go a long way to find somebody who's more mild-mannered and decent than Tom Griffith. Of course, he's from Utah, and that helps. <laughs> Tom Griffith was confirmed 73 to 24. The Democrats split roughly even. Brett Kavanaugh's 57 to 36. Only four Democrats supported him. It's a disgrace. For the first time in history, we had near party-line votes for the D.C. Circuit. Contrast that with the eight Reagan appointees, all but one of whom were confirmed by voice vote or unanimous consent. The confirmation wars were back to full swing. Now let's turn back now to the Supreme Court. President Bush appointed two justices to the court. The first was John Roberts. Roberts' confirmation had fewer fireworks than some uh, previous uh, nominations because he was replacing Chief Justice Rehnquist. He was not expected to change the ideological balance of the court. Moreover, Democrats knew there was another nomination coming that would change the balance of the court. At the time Chief Justice Roberts had his confirmation hearing, there were actually two, actually two Supreme Court openings. Rehnquist's and Justice O'Connor's. Rehnquist's opening would be filled first, O'Connor's second. Replacing Rehnquist with another conservative would not alter the court's ideological makeup, but replacing O'Connor with a more conservative justice would. I believe the Democrats held their fire on Roberts because they knew a second, more consequential nomination was coming. They wanted to be able to say, look, we voted for Roberts, we're not partisan. Roberts was reasonable, but this new nominee, he or she is different, even though they didn't know who it was. <laughs> he or she is unacceptable. And so Roberts was confirmed relatively easily by a vote of 78 to 22. Hard to believe that 22 people voted against him. I would uh, note, however, that his confirmation vote did represent a decline from Justice Ginsburg's 96 to 3 vote and Justice Breyer's 87 to 9 vote. As you'll recall, President Bush made two nominations to fill Justice O'Connor's seat. The first was White House Counsel Harriet Myers, who withdrew following opposition from conservative groups themselves. The second was Third Circuit Judge Samuel Alito, who, who was confirmed. Alito's confirmation experience was different, however. Uh, 
You talk about a really fine guy, but it was different from Roberts because Alito would be replacing Justice O'Connor, the court's longtime, quote, swing vote, unquote. Democrats were much more pointed in their attacks. In particular, they dug up a 25-year-old job application to which Alito had listed membership to a group called Concerned Alumni of Princeton. <laughs> Makes you sick, doesn't it? <laughs> you have to laugh about some of this stuff. Even when it became clear that Alito knew nothing of the group's more controversial positions, Democrats kept up their attack. The criticisms of Justice Alito were so personal and so intense that his wife briefly left the confirmation hearing in, in tears. I know because I went out to console her and left the confirmation hearing at the time. She was a wonderful woman. Democrats' efforts ultimately failed, however, and Justice Alito was confirmed. But not before Democrats tried to filibuster his nomination. Note that no Republicans had tried to filibuster Justices Ginsburg or Breyer. Even those who opposed their nominations did not try to prevent an up or down vote. But as, as we've already seen with the D.C. Circuit, Republican efforts during the Clinton years to dial back the partisan warfare were met with the back of the hand once uh, a Republican was back in the White House. The filibuster failed, and Alito was uh, confirmed 58 to 42. Can you imagine? The 42 of those bozos voted against him. <laughs> I certainly shouldn't treat them like that. The, the bastards would be a better word. <laughs> don't think I should have said that either. <laughs> I guess couldn't help myself. <laughs> Only four Democrats supported his confirmation, the lowest number of opposing party votes for a Supreme Court nomination in all of my years in the Senate up to that point. Even Justice Thomas, <laughs> even you, <laughs> received 11 Democratic votes for confirmation and that was after the most contentious confirmation process in American history. So, Clarence, you did well. <laughs> That's why he does well, too. <laughs> President Bush was followed in office by President Obama. Given the deterioration of the confirmation process during Bush's time, one might have expected the Republicans to give President Obama's Supreme Court nominees a nasty reception. But that didn't happen. Republicans found much to object to in Soda Sotomayor and Elena Kagan's records, including Sotomayor's suggestion in numerous speeches that a, quote, wise Latina woman, unquote, would more often than not make better judicial decisions than a white male Republican, than, than a white male Republican that also expressed deep concern about Kagan's decision as dean of Harvard Law School to ban military recruiters from campus. But they didn't launch a withering personal attack or assault that Democrats uh, had leveled against previous Republican nominees. They didn't try to filibuster their nominations. Republicans asked Sotomayor and Kagan pointed questions, to be sure, but they did not try to destroy them as was the want of the Democrats. 
The confirmation votes were 68 to 31 for Sotomayor, with nine Republicans in support, and 63-37 for Kagan, with five Republicans in support. Sotomayor and Kagan both received more votes from Republicans than Alito received from Democrats. Keep that in mind next time Democrats try to pin the blame for the confirmation wars on the GOP. I'll say just a few words about President Obama's D.C. Circuit nominees. President Obama appointed four judges to the D.C. Circuit. Sri Srivivasan, Patricia Millett, Cornelia Pillard, and Robert Wilkins. A fifth nominee, Caitlin Halligan, withdrew her nomination. Compared to the way Senate Democrats treated President Bush's D.C. Circuit nominees, the confirmation process for President Obama's first nominee, Judge Srinivasan, uh, uh, was a walk in the park. He was confirmed 11 months after nomination by a vote of 97 to 0. Not a single Republican opposed his nomination. Now compare that to the votes on President Bush's D.C. Circuit nominees. 43 no votes for Judge Brown, 24 no votes for Judge Griffith, 36 no votes for Judge Kavanaugh. You'd have thought it was the 1990s again. President Obama's other D.C. Circuit nominees were confirmed only after Senate Democrats changed the, uh, the rules. And uh, in order to eliminate the filibuster for lower court nominees. The hubris of this move was quite something. It was, Democrats recall, recall who first deployed uh, the judicial uh, filibuster 10 years earlier to block President Bush's nominees. Now that the shoe was on the other foot and a Democrat was in the White House, Senate Democrats had no compunctions about changing the rules to suit their needs. As you can imagine, Senate Republicans were furious. The result was nearly party-line votes on President Obama's other D.C. Circuit nominees, or appointees. I mentioned that one of President Obama's D.C. Circuit nominees, Caitlin Halligan, withdrew her nomination. She did so after a wait of two years and six months. If you wanted, I suppose you could criticize Republicans for holding up her nomination for such a lengthy period of time. But it was not anything different from what the Senate Democrats did to John Roberts or Miguel Estrada or Janice Rogers Brown or Brett Kavanaugh. And I haven't even mentioned Peter Kaiser, who, who, uh, whom uh, I might add uh, President Bush nominated to the D.C. Circuit in 2006, but who never even received a floor vote. President Obama had one other judicial nominee who bears mention, Merrick Garland. Garland's name has become a rallying cry for our friends on the left. And he's a good one to rally behind because Garland's a very good person and a very good judge, by the way. President Obama nominated Garland to the Supreme Court in March 2016, eight months before the 2016 presidential election, and one month after the primaries had already begun. It had been a 100 years since the Supreme Court nominee had been confirmed in a presidential election year after voting in the election had started. So Republicans made the entirely justifiable decision not to process Garland's uh, nomination, following a policy Joe Biden himself had laid out 25 years earlier. 
In so doing, they did not seek to destroy or tear down Judge Garland, which they shouldn't have. They didn't attack his character or try to sully his, his, his good name. They simply did not process his nomination. Compare that to what Democrats did to Alito and Thomas and Bork and Rehnquist. As we all know, Donald Trump won the 2016 election and nominated Neil Gorsuch. Gorsuch's hearings followed a, a path similar to the hearings for Chief Justice Roberts. Gorsuch, a conservative, had been nominated to fill the seat of Justice Scalia, also a conservative, meaning his nomination was unlikely to change the balance of the court. Democrats made some effort, or should I say efforts, to distort Gorsuch's record. We heard endlessly about a frozen trucker, for example. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But we didn't see this sort of attack, you know, or these sort of personal attacks that we saw with Alito and Thomas. We did, however, see a filibuster. Now that the shoe was back on the other foot, Democrats were more than happy to use the filibuster to try to block a Republican nominee. And so following the precedent set by Democrats during the Obama years, Republicans lowered the threshold for cloture to prevent the minority party from blocking a nominee with clear majority support. Gorsuch was confirmed 54 to 45, with only three Democratic votes. The number of Democrats willing to support a Republican Supreme Court nominee continued to fall. That brings us to Brett Kavanaugh. The less said about recent events, uh, the better as far as I'm concerned, but I'd like to highlight two points about the Kavanaugh confirmation. First, it represented a sort of combination of everything the confirmation uh, wars had been building to over the past 30 years. The Borg hearings gave the vilification and defamation coupled with gross distortions of the nominee's record. The Thomas hearings gave us character assassination and the politics of personal destruction. We saw elements of both of these approaches in subsequent uh, confirmations, particularly the Alito confirmation. But the Kavanaugh confirmation is when everything finally came together. The outlandish misrepresentations of pretty much everything the nominee had ever said, coupled with the most vile personal attacks imaginable. It's no coincidence, I believe, that this, con this confluence of events occurred during the battle to replace Justice Kennedy, the man who for many years had held the key to critically important five to four decisions. When the stakes are high, the wolves come out. The second point to highlight about the Kavanaugh confirmation is how eerily it parallels the experience of Justice Thomas. The nominee endures a tough hearing but comes through mostly unscathed. He appears on the path to confirmation. He has been nominated to replace a justice well to his left, sending the other side into apoplexy. Then on the eve of a crucial vote, allegations are leaked to the press, and not just any allegations, but salacious allegations that just so happen to play into stereotypes about the nominee that many on the left have been pushing. It turns out also that Democrats have known about these allegations for some time, but did not raise them in the earlier hearing or in private 
conversations with the nominee or with their colleagues on the other side. They also failed to disclose the allegations to Republicans for a period of several weeks. And then, at a late hour when confirmation appeared assured, the allegations are leaked to the press, throwing the nomination into doubt and dragging, uh, dragging their feet even further than, I think, in many respects ever before. And dragging the nominee and his family through the mud. Call it the Democratic playbook. It's dishonest, it's malicious, and it's enormously damaging to the country. It's also something the Republicans have never done to a Democratic Supreme Court nominee, at least not during my time in, the, in office. Thankfully, Justice Kavanaugh made it through this ordeal and was confirmed by a vote of 50 to 48. And it wasn't easy because there were some of us really had to dig in and dig our heels in and make sure that we could get him through. Only one Democrat supported his confirmation. That's the lowest number for a Republican Supreme Court nominee yet. We're very nearly to the point of party-line Supreme Court confirmations. From the unanimous vote for Justice O'Connor to the two-thirds vote for Chief Justice Rehnquist to the near-party-line vote for Justice Kavanaugh, if you want to talk about the decline of the judicial confirmation process, that's it, in a nutshell. Unless we forget about the lower courts, the decline is accelerating there as well. President Trump's one D.C. Uh, excuse me, President Trump's one D.C. Circuit uh, nominee so far, Greg Katsas, was confirmed by a vote of 51 to 49. Again, nearly party line. We're seeing roll call votes on every single court of appeals nominee. No, no kidding. Cloture votes on every single Court of Appeals nominee. Roll call and cloture votes on nearly every district court nominee as well. We've gone from the world of voice votes and unanimous consent agreements on seven of President Reagan's eight D.C. Circuit nominees to straight partisan warfare up and down the entire federal judiciary. It's all scorched earth all the time. And it's terrible. I hope you found tonight's history lesson interesting. My goal tonight has been to share with you my perspective on how the judicial confirmation process has changed for the worse during my time in the Senate. There's blame on both sides, I admit, though I uh, think a fair assessment of the facts shows that the vast majority of the blame lies with one side in particular. And it's not my side. <laughs> As you all know... <laughs> It's not our side, but that's an argument for another day. I worry that those entering politics today and my many Senate colleagues who haven't had the long tenure I have think that it's always been this way, that it's always been a pitched battle over every nomination, that it's been nuclear war forever. But it hasn't, really. It hasn't. Not until 30 years ago did the partisan fires engulfed the Supreme Court confirmation process. And with the lower courts, it's an even more recent inferno. I remember the days before the fire, the days of unanimous confirmation votes, the days of voice votes and unanimous consent, even for D.C. Circuit nominees. I wish we could get back to those days. I thought they were much better days than the current days. 
Things are just so nasty right now. And unfortunately, I don't see a way out of it, not as long as both sides are engaged in all-out warfare. And by the way, I think almost all of this has come from Roe versus Wade. You talk about a stupid, dumbass decision. I shouldn't have said that. I mean, first of all, it had nothing to do with the law. It had nothing to do with what it should have had to do with. It's an important issue. There's no question. A good percentage of our country is concerned about those issues. But there was no reason for the court to do that. And frankly, it's led to all kinds of conflicts and and confrontations ever since. And it's not just Roe either. It's uh, some other cases as well. But that's the main one that has caused us so much judicial difficulty in this country. The only hope I have is that perhaps someone someday will take a step back and say, enough, let's hit a pause. Let's try to work together again. That's what I did with President Clinton. And I think it helped. Did I vote for some nominees I wouldn't have chosen if I'd been president? Yes, but I did it under the expectation that when the shoe was back on the other foot, the other side would at least reciprocate, at least some of them. Regrettably, that did not happen. We went from the detente of the Clinton years straight into the partisan warfare of the Bush years. There's really not much trust left on either side. Certainly there's very little trust on the Republican side, not after the complete, almost mindless obstruction we've seen from the Senate Democrats these last two years. If things are going to improve, it's going to take some real effort on all of our part, at rebuilding trust and perhaps a leap of faith or two. The last time we saw this was when the Senate minority decided to work with the White House to give the president's Supreme Court nominees a fair shake. I led that effort, by the way. I think it was good for the country. I'm hopeful something like that can happen again. However, I can't say that I'm optimistic that it will. But things can change. As our good friend Harvey Dent likes to say, the night is darkest just before dawn. Well, I want to thank you again for the honor of being here tonight. This organization is really important to me. They have done a spectacular job over the years, and I am very grateful for all the work that they've done and all of you for the support that you've given to it. It's been a privilege of my life to be a United States Senator for 40, 42 years. I can't say that I have loved being here every day of those 42 years, but I have really respected the privilege that I've had of working for you for 42 years. And I hope as I hang them up, I'll still be able to weigh in and help with some of these problems that uh, we're going to have in the future. I just wish we could find some way of ending the total partisanship that has erupted over these last number of years. The Heritage Foundation is a critical organization. I want to personally honor all of you for supporting the Heritage Foundation and showing up here tonight. You're part of really helping maybe change this thing and turn it around. But again, I'm willing to fight. I think you are too. We're not just going to let them walk all over us. And we're going to try and keep this country in the constitutionally sound manner that it's been over all these years. God bless all of you. Thanks so much.
Senator, that was an outstanding historical analysis of the confirmation process. And I think, as most of us feel, as you do, the changes have to be made. But the first step to make constructive changes is to define the problem. And I can say without any doubt, you've defined it for us tonight. Thank you. It's been uh, our tradition to make certain presentations. And so uh, if you'll uh, be with, bear with us a moment, the first is the Statue of Justice. The Joseph Story history, as I mentioned it earlier this evening, and his exposition of the law of this country was one that uh, achieved great acclaim at the time. And one of the things that was particularly impressive about Joseph's story was the even-handed way in which he wrote about the law and, as a justice, dispensed justice for this country. And so this Statue of Justice, we hope, will be in your new office, wherever it is, and a reminder. Of and since you said that you're not going to fade from the scene, but will be very active in the future, we thought you should have copies of the commentaries, the uh, both the, the important uh, uh, book that uh, brought Joseph's story to attention, and these are the commentaries on the Constitution written by Joseph Story. Well, thank you. And Joseph Story was very smart. He not only wrote the big book, but he also wrote the cliff notes. <laughs> and so here is a familiar exposition of the Constitution of the United States by Joseph Story, I'm proud to say I had the privilege of writing a foreword to this. Thank you, Kay James, for help being with us tonight, and thank you again, Senator, for all you have done in your terrific history of 42 years. And so we wish you the best of luck in the future, but don't forget Heritage and come back often. We want to see you there. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain in your seats until the uh, Senator and uh, Mrs. James and the distinguished party in front uh, leave. And uh, at that time, uh, John Malcolm has a few instructions and ideas for you. Ideas on us. <laughs>
we're going to wait until I get the high sign. But in the meantime, I just want to I want to thank everybody uh, for being here. This is obviously uh, a highlight of the year uh, for us, and we are honored uh, to have you with us uh, for it. And as soon as I have been given the word that uh, our distinguished guests have uh, have, have left, uh, there will be a reception outside, and uh, I would invite you all to it. <laughs> Patience is a virtue, which is not one of mine. Is it? <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Enjoy the reception.